Welcome to episode three of Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We had the honor and privilege to interview Rabbi Professor Joshua Berman. Dr. Berman is a professor of Bible at Bar-Ilan University. He's known for his views on the history of Jewish belief and on biblical source criticism, arguing that the knowledge of the culture context of the ancient Near East is required in understanding the scriptures. Berman earned his A.B. at Princeton University in 1987 and his Ph.D. at Bar-Ilan University in 2002. He's an Orthodox rabbi and studied at Yeshivat Har Etzion for eight years. Before completing his Ph.D., Professor Berman taught Bible at the Nishmat Midrashah for several years. Rabbi Berman is a frequent contributor to Mosaic Magazine, a magazine for Jewish ideas, religion, politics, and culture, and has written there on a variety of topics, including most commonly the Israelite exodus out of Egypt and the current state of biblical studies. I urge you all to listen to this and share it with friends because this is a topic that is troubling and challenging to many Jews who have access to information and the internet and universities and they've been attacked from all sides and there's plenty of works out there that tell the story of biblical criticism trying to dismantle the torah and basically you know relegate it to something like uh, an archaic book or a relic of the past that was composed by different authors and so on and so forth so what rabbi berman is doing is so important because he's really the probably the only voice who's qualified to have a rebuttal and actually dismantle their arguments. So without further ado, Rabbi Berman. We wanted to ask the rabbi, can you explain what biblical criticism is, the biases in politics and modern scholarship and the history of the word history in Jewish tradition? Okay, so biblical criticism uh, means the way in which um, um, I'd say academic scholars have been looking at the Bible for the last uh, 250 years. And that's a little different, it's quite different than the way in which um, people of religious faith, Jewish faith, Christian faith, have been reading the Bible as just taking it as a given that this is the word of God, infallible, <clears throat> given more or less precisely as the texts appear before us. And scholars, uh, uh, beginning uh, around the time of the Enlightenment, 250 years ago, began to uh, approach the text with different assumptions. Um, especially they were troubled by things that appeared to be inconsistencies in the text, sometimes stories in the, in the Torah, especially, that are told in two different ways that seem irreconcilable. Uh, laws that are given in the Torah in different places that seem to be irreconcilable. Um, Later on, scholars wanted to understand uh, to what degree are these texts historically accurate, especially once we began to have uh, archaeological finds beginning in the late 19th century from Egypt to Mesopotamia, and of course here in Eretz Israel, uh, and trying to determine do the, does the archaeology back up what we have in the Bible? Do things written elsewhere in other cultures back up what's happened, what we have in the Bible? And it's just a way of looking at the text without many of the presumptions that we have as, as God-fearing people. Uh, I would say that these questions are often very interesting and good, valid questions in and of themselves. They are not motivated by anti-Semitism. 
and they are not motivated in the first place by secularism. In fact, the first Bible critics were themselves all God-fearing Christians. Um, and the questions that they raise, as I say, are, are, are valid ones and uh, uh, ones that, that I think any thinking person uh, would want to try to entertain and, and to, to, to come to some type of resolution. That's in a nutshell what we're talking about here. That's interesting. Christians were the first to bring up biblical criticism and not Jews. Yeah, this is okay. This is because um, um, there's a very big difference between uh, the world of Christian belief and the world of, of, of Jewish belief. Uh, and that's without any type of uh, um, uh, uh, prejudice or bias. So you'll see what I'm about to say. Um, um, from the get go, universities were religious in the Christian world, already from like the 1200s and the 1300s. And so all from the beginning, religious belief, theological growth, theological schools were always alongside universities. Cambridge, Oxford, all these places were originally very religious institutions and they were training primarily priests and pastors. Um, and so it's just always been natural for uh, Christian believers to, they don't have anything like a yeshiva that just exists by itself. There are theological schools, seminaries that are alongside thinking, you know, academic universities. And so it's almost natural that as they are having their spiritual training, that their, their eyes are open to these, to these other critical methods. Whereas for Jewish people, for Jewish people, especially for Orthodox people, you know, we have, we've had a very rich intellectual heritage, but it's been very much sequestered. Uh, uh, you know, the melding yeshiva and university in one is a very new idea, historically speaking. And even at the beginning, it, you know, to talk about looking at Kitvea Kodesh, all these books that I have behind me and that you have behind you, uh, through the lens of anything other than Rashi and Tosfot, this is a really, really new idea to do with a kippah in your head and to say, I'm going to do this as an act of, an, of, of Abodat Hashem, and I'm going to do so remaining fully committed, not only to religious practice, but to religious belief. So all of this for us is very, very new, and for a lot of people, very frightening. And what about, um, what about in the tradition where there's, there are some rabbis who seem to hint at different parts of the Torah being written at different times, potentially, or by, by different people other than Moshe. Um, and why, why did dogma occur? Because obviously until the time of Maimonides, maybe a little bit before, um, maybe they felt a little compelled to respond to, let's say, attacks from the Arab world. Um, so maybe you can explain that a little bit. Dogma is a very interesting thing. Its role historically for us as Orthodox Jews. Um, obviously, beliefs have always been important. And someone who just runs around and, you know, does mitzvot, but doesn't think about a Kaddish Baruch at all. So that's, you know, that's not serious at all. But the heavy emphasis on dogma historically has been like in, in waves and ebbs, ebbs and flows, sometimes greatly emphasized and sometimes de-emphasized. So whenever there is a threat from the outside that stems from dogma, dogma becomes very, very important to Gedolei Yisrael. So when in the time of the Rambam, for example, living in a very heady age of Islamic, of Muslim theology, where a lot of that theology was challenging the Torah, then it was very important for the Rambam to set out the Ikarei Emunah, and this is what we are committed to, and anyone who has any questions about this is out. It was important to put forward a bulwark uh, against the attacks coming from Muslim theology. And this is why theology was never as big a deal 
uh, uh, in terms of the points that the Rambam was making, uh, let's say in, 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 uh, uh, in Christian Europe, um, there, everybody believed the Torah was holy. You know, I mean, we have, we have, we've had historically lots and lots of bitter, bitter disputes with the, uh, with the Christian world. Uh, but about one thing, there's never been a dispute, and that is that the Tanakh is holy. Uh, and so issues of, you know, exactly how many psuki maybe perhaps were written somewhat later than Moshe. So within the, within the Ashkenazi, when I say Ashkenazi, I don't mean like today's Ashkenazi. I mean, I mean, medieval Ashkenazi, you know, France and Germany, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, uh, um, there were opinions that, that, that were perhaps a little bit more liberal than what we might say today. But it's not because they were secular or because they denied the importance of the Torah. It had nothing to do with that. Uh, and in our time, I would say that Gimel Ikarei Munad, the 13 principles of faith, is very interesting, even though the Rambam put a great emphasis on them. Many G'dolei Yisrael after him for many centuries did not put that same emphasis on the Yugimel Ikarei Munah become really, really important. Again, I would say in the 19th century in Europe, as Jews began to abandon uh, tradition uh, with the Haskalah, with the Enlightenment, uh, as citizenship was opened up to them, the, when the, if you maintain the Yugimel Ikarei Munah, that became a litmus test as to whether you were an acceptable Jew or not. And so it was in Europe that this all became much more important again. In fact, uh, I'll just, yeah, I'll just show one, one fascinating little tidbit. You know, the Rambam famously says in his Hakdama the Perusha Mishnayot, in his introduction to uh, uh, his commentary to the Mishnah, where he lays out the Yudgimel Ikareya Munad, the 13 principles of faith. And he states, anyone, it's not just anyone who denies any one of these is uh, not considered Jewish. That's what he says. If you even have a slight doubt, you are not considered Jewish. And I will tell you that there is no posek who ever accepted that strict, that, that, that high bar of a formulation, which many, many authorities, of course, accepted Yugimelikaramuna, but to say, if you have even a doubt about it, you're out, you're not Jewish. Do you know who the first posek was who adopted that? It's remarkable. It was the Chafetz Chaim. It was the Chafetz Chaim, we think about this man who loves all of Klai Yisrael. I'm sure he did love all of Klai Yisrael, but in his book, uh, what is it? He has a book about stuff. I forgot what it's called. And there he says, you know, times are so difficult and there's so much, there's so many mouths to feed and so little money to go around that we're going to make this determination. Those that adhere to the Yudgimel Ikarei Munah, those are the people who are going to get stakan. Those who don't are not. Uh, and it's very interesting that it took what, seven, 800 years for a post to come along and adopt the Rambam's definitions there. So this has been, a, a, I would say, an issue that has had ebbs and, and, and flows and highs and lows and sometimes more emphasized and sometimes less. Obviously, in our own time, where we are challenged theologically from many realms, uh, these issues are very important. This is why you'll find no posik in the history of Psak who emphasizes ikarei munah, principles of faith, more than Rav Moshe Feinstein. Because in mid-century, when, I mean, we were just shedding, we were losing people right and left, the Orthodox world. There were entire shuls that were Orthodox that went conservative. And so this was a real battle for him. I would say probably a greater battle for him than, than, than today. We have, we have other challenges today. That's, that's, uh, that's in, in a nutshell. I would think that, why would then, if, if the Yudim al-Karim was more reactionary, why is it also littered through Mishnah Torah and considered put into halachic formulation instead of just being in parish mishnayot or different places where it would seem to be more appropriate if it's 
if it's responding instead of being right right so that this is actually a, a fascinating point it is not clear that the yugimo ikare emuna as a unit 1 to 13 in precisely the, the, these formulations right, that's why are I in fact in fact um, uh, even the Rambam in, in, in the in, in the Perusha Mishnah doesn't flesh out each of the Ikare Emunah. Sometimes he says, go see here, go see, and if you want to know what I mean, go see there. Uh, think about the ninth, the ninth uh, Ikare Emunah. Um, it is true that we have in the third chapter of Hilchot Shuva uh, a list of beliefs, and, and anyone who doesn't affirm them uh, uh, is considered, you know, pasula edut and pasula shkitan and all, and all sorts of other things. Yeah, yeah. But the Rambam does not have a category of the gimel ikare emunah as such in the Mishneh Torah. And I will also tell you that really prior to Rav Moshe Feinstein, maybe a couple of people before him, you will not find in the history of Psaq a posset that will say, well, this is important because it is one of the yugimel ikare emunah and therefore that has halakhic ramifications. The Yugimel Ikareya Munah are not mentioned in Sifrut HaHalakha, in, 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 in Shutim, uh, until the 19th century. That's incredible. Huh? What is, but it, but it must be stated, what is cited is the third parak of Hilchot Shuvah, different, different issues, and, and there sometimes there's differences between them. And I actually think that on the, uh, on the issue of the eighth Ikareya Munah, what a person must believe, there, there, there are some differences between what the Rambam writes in the Hakdamata Perusha Mishnah and what he writes in Hilchot Shuba, but that's that's for a, a long discussion. The second half of your book, if anyone wants to check it's it in, out. Yeah, it's the whole second half of uh, a, a book I wrote, Anima Amin, Biblical Criticism, Historical historical uh, Truth, and the 13 Principles of Faith. Yeah. Right, so this whole idea that the Torah never changed one letter I mean, obviously, um, we see even there are hints from rabbis throughout history, like Ibn Ezra, his, he kind of alludes to it in a kind of a coded way, saying that the, the secret of the 12 and Rashi kind of alludes to a part that's maybe a scribal edition. And uh, even in the Gemara, it brings down that there are three different versions of the Torah found, and then they had to pick two out of the three that actually uh, were the same. And throughout history, there was never a problem. So at what point did it become necessary for Jews to say, hey, we're going to draw a line in the sand and we can't even have sure. a conversation? It, it all begins with biblical criticism. Hmm. Here, let me, let, me, let me show you a dividing line, okay? The Chatam Sofer, okay, a very religious man, right? Considered, you know, really the, the, the founder of the Haredi world, right? The Hungarian Haredi world, the Chatam Sofer, has a perush on the Torah. I think it's called Divrei Moshe. Um, he has a perush on the Torah. And when he comes to the last parak of the Torah, Dvarim Perak Lamedalid, okay, the story of Moshe Rabbeinu going up to Harnevo, where he will depart from this world. And we all know that, or we recall, and I'll just maybe lay it out here for those that, that don't recall, uh, the Gemara in Baba Batra, Mudalif, says that uh, there are two opinions about the last eight psukim of the Torah. One opinion says that even though Moshe was already parted when those, when those psukim, the, the narrative of those psukim is after he dies. So one opinion says, well, Moshe had nevuah beforehand and he wrote them bedimah. In other words, Hashem told him, you know, now you have to write vayamot Moshe, that Moshe died, etc. And Moshe wrote the words as he cried. And then there's another opinion that says, Yoshua wrote them, okay? That's about the last eight psukim. Says the Chatam Sofer, in his commentary to the Torah, 
I have a question, not about the last eight psukim, but the last 12 psukim. All those psukim that talk about Moshe going up to Harmedo and Hashem speaking to him. So where, you know, what, what about those psukim? Who wrote those? Are we supposed to, this is what he says, are we supposed to believe that uh, Moshe brought a Sefer Torah with him, brought it up to the mountain, and then, you know, wrote until that pasuk, and then put the Torah down, and then Moshe was niftar, and then B'nai Yisrael came up that mountain and looking around for the Torah, found that, the, I'm, not, I'm, I'm speaking as facetiously as he does. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These questions, okay? And he leaves it with a tzarich iyun, okay? Now, what he's saying there is that I am ready to entertain the possibility that there are not only eight psukim, for which there's already a source or at least an opinion in the Gemara, but I'm going to say more psukim, or I'm ready to say that this might be. The Chatam Sukhir easily could have said, oh, I guess Moshe Rabbeinu had nevuah, the Chatav Bediman. He wrote them while crying, but he doesn't go that route. Now, this shows an openness, the critical thought. There was only possible still in the early 19th century when he wrote his commentary on the Torah. Because when we're speaking of the scholars that I mentioned before about biblical criticism, this really, really gets underway and becomes something that flows out into the public in the middle of the 19th century. And even then, really only in Germany, let's say. And so by mid-century, you will have figures like Rav Shimshon Rafael Hirsch, okay, who Many of, many of the people I'm sure that are, that are tuning into uh, to this podcast love to read Reverse. He sounds so fresh and so modern, even today, 200 years after he wrote, okay? But Rav Hirsch, living in the middle of the 19th century was very aware of biblical criticism and won't budge one inch, one dot, one iota that every, every single thing must have been written by Moshe Rabbeinu because in his time, this is a big threat. So as the issues become more threatening, traditionally, Historically, our sages have hunkered down. And that's what kind of <laughs> with uh, Ibn Hazen and, and uh, you know, how he introduced the idea that the Torah was falsified and, you know, that Maimonides maybe felt compelled to reply. Is that is that what you're referring to? Yes, it's the same thing back then. Yeah, let me just flesh that out for those that might not be, might not be familiar. Um, um, so as we already said, in the Gemara, there's already opinions that there were psukim that were not written by Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, um, uh, there's a, a Muslim theologian, widely considered to be the number two theologian of all time uh, uh, in the Islamic world, whose name was Ibn Hazm, and he lived 100 years before the Rambam. And Islam traditionally had a kind of uh, two opinions about the Torah. One that was clearly a very antique and holy book. There's no question about that. Uh, and it's so holy that if you read it properly, said these many early uh, Muslim theologians, you will find hints to it, not to Jesus, but to Muhammad. So if you read it correct, correctly, you will find Muhammad. And uh, Ibn Hazm was too honest and said, you know what? No, no, it doesn't work. These are not references to Muhammad. Then, but then all you're left with is a very holy and antique book, more, much more antique, obviously, than the Quran. And so Ibn Hazm went on the warpath to uh, rip the Torah to shreds. He is actually the first Bible critic not Spinoza, like people think, in the late 17th yeah. century. I've written a lot about this, but even Hazm. Yeah, he has a 100-page treaty trying to rip the Torah to pieces, all the things that seem to be contradictory. And the things he says, he says about Jews, whoo, smoking. I mean, as, as anti-Semitic as anything written in the, in, in, in the 20th century. Okay? And so the Rambam is put on the defensive because this becomes just common knowledge amongst all, all Muslims and therefore all Arabic-speaking Jews that your book has 
meaning our book, has lots of contradictions in it. In fact, uh, there's a, a Posek the Radbaz who lived in Sfat hundreds of years later, like in the 15th century. And he says that he ran around to every Beit Knesset in Sfat to make sure that all of the Sifrei Torah in the different Batei Knesset had exactly the same spelling of every word so that no Arab, right? Because this is the Ottoman Empire at that time. So that no Arab could say, ah, you see, in their different synagogues, the Jews have different versions of their Torah. We told you. Wow. This wow. really has a huge impact for a very long time. I wanted to bring up another subject. Um, like many religious parents and educators today, particularly in the ultra-Orthodox world, they want to shield themselves and their children from the outside world, from the internet, from universities, because some of the ideas, they, you know, they just don't want to be exposed to certain ideas. They don't want their children exposed to certain ideas. Um, classical Judaism, going back to the golden age of Spain, celebrated the balance between religion, reason, and science. So do you feel the approach of the Haredi world is unsustainable? And if so, what are the steps they can take to solve the problem? So I don't know if it's unsustainable. Let me just uh, let me let me speak from my own anecdotal evidence of, of interactions with Jews all across the spectrum. So as you pointed out, you might want to hold it up. I have I've written this book about uh, uh, orthodoxy, biblical criticism called Anima Amin. Yeah, uh, biblical criticism, historical truth, and the and the uh, thirteen principles of faith. And I thought maybe you know who would read this? Maybe some guys at YU, that type of orbit, that type of world. Uh, that I suspect uh, the two of you might also identify with largely. And I kind of figured, you know, but obviously the, what's called, you know, the yeshiva velt, uh, you know, the Haredi world, I mean, why would they have any interest in this? And I have gotten more, more correspondence and I get correspondence every single day in my inbox. I have received more correspondence from people who learned in institutions to the right of yeshiva university than I have people from yeshiva university left. Uh, including from Lakewood and Amir and Gateshead and Satmer, who hosted me for a Shabbat uh, a couple of months ago in Williamsburg. That's a whole community, but uh, a small, uh, a small but, but not, not unsizable uh, portion of the community. And all of this comes about because, because even though uh, many in the Haredi world would like to have high walls and have you know, a pure bastion of Torah, um, it doesn't work anymore. It doesn't work anymore because everybody is online. And once you're online, so many things begin to happen. You know, there are filters you can put on for some things, but most of the things out there, you can't put filters on. And I would say above all, what happens when, we all, when we're all online, and many of us are now, is that we become, even before we get to, even if you don't come across, you know, reading something that says, oh my gosh, I never thought of that question about the Bible. Even if you don't see that, we all become much more critical thinkers because we see on every topic under the sun, there are different opinions, there are different intelligent opinions. And that, makes, that has to make all of us think, hmm, well, what about the things that I grew up with? What about things that I've always taken as true? Are these things really, you know, really true? And so we all become much more critically minded. And then when we read something that points out, you know, there is a real contradiction between the way in which this story is told in Sefer Dvarim and the way it's told in Sefer Bamidbar, or there's a real contradiction between a halacha that appears in Sefer Shmot and a halacha that appears in Sefer Dvarim in the Pshut Hoshamikran, just what the simple words mean, then you go, whoa. And, and you know, there's no, there's no blocking this stuff out anymore. 
And so, and so for, you know, listen, the truth is, is that most, most observant Jews are not bothered and that's okay. There's no mitzvah to be bothered. Okay? Right. There's no mitzvah to think critically. There really isn't, there really isn't. There's a mitzvah to, 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 to be God-fearing, to observe his laws, to be a good Jew. At the same time, for many, many people, their avodat Hashem, rightly so, and it's a great gift, involves their head and involves, the reality is, is that not everybody is cut out for that, okay? And so, you know, when I see many Jews who are not particularly troubled by these issues or kind of bored by them, um, that's okay. However, I do believe that there is a very high form of avodat Hashem that involves critical thinking, that involves all sorts of thinking, that involves a seeking of, of truth. And, 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 and it's only through that hard work of seeking the truth that we are able to fulfill the dictum of la'ovdecha be'emet. That's how we serve a Kaddish Baruch Hu. And for that segment of the population, which is not small, it's very, very important to have these resources, have resources think, to address these issues. I think um, like when you see inconsistencies, let's say in the Decalogue, the different versions of the Decalogue in the Torah, you can really say, okay, but these are just, they're just expanding on the original Decalogue, fine. The issue I think that a lot of people have is when they find that like the census or anytime the Torah uses some type of calculation or timeline that doesn't match up, that's where people have the biggest problem. And this is part of the first question that Bensi asked, which you didn't get to the right. history of the word history in Judaism and how the Torah kind of wasn't written for the modern person. It was written for, you know, peop the people of the past. So could you explain that? Yeah, but let me begin with a, a story about the first girl I dated, okay? She used to say, be reasonable, do things my way. And um, it didn't really work out, right? <laughs> um, because you can't go through life expecting everyone to do things your way. Why do I mention that? Because, because as modern people, all of us born you know, in the late 20th century, we come to everything we do and everything we think about and everything we read with assumptions that have been just part of us from the day we've been born because it's the culture around us. And we are unaware of the degree to which so much of our thinking is anachronistic, is a product of the time and place that we live in. And that people who lived a few generations ago thought about things in radically different ways, okay? I mean, just to give you one small example of this, okay? I mean, nothing to do with Tanakh or anything, okay? But when we say that the word homosexual, okay? That word didn't exist 150 years ago. The idea that someone had an identity as such did not exist. You say, how, how could that possibly be? Or if I say to you that um, uh, in the late 40s, when, when people came over from Europe after the Shoah, nobody called them survivors. That word did not exist. That is a word that came into our lexicon only in the 1970s. And there's reasons for this. You say, what? Come on. Yes, it's true. The way in which we think about the world changes over time radically. And it's also true with regard to things having to do with just things you said. People look at numbers in the Torah. Oh my goodness, the things just don't work out. They seem to contradict, they don't add up. 
And they're like, this is, I mean, this is just Aleph bait. You know, if they can't even get the numbers straight, then how are we supposed to reply, rely on anything else? And, and, and so what we need to understand is that our ways of reading and thinking might not be the ways in which many, many, many people before us thought and wrote, especially about numbers in the Bible. Can I just give an example okay, of what I mean, okay, that I think will be a little, uh, will be really illuminating and surprising. Um, I, I wanna talk about this very issue, numbers, right? So we say, we look at a number and we take it seriously. We take it statistically, we take it quantitatively, okay? Let, 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 me, let, me, let me show you what, what the Tanakh does. It says in Divrei Hayamim, in the book of Chronicles, okay, that the king Yehoshaphat, he had a whole bunch of armies, and when you add up the total number of all of his armies, it comes out to 1,160,000 troops. That is huge. That's, that's more than all of Tzahal with all of Miluim, all of the reservists called up. So that's really a hard number to believe. If it had said he had a million troops, say, okay, and I feel like a million bucks, a million is a million. But when it says a million, 160,000 total, um, you know, you think, oh, wait a minute, that, that really does sound like they're counting pretty carefully until we discover the following thing. What we see is this. These are all of the, it says he has five different armies and they add up to this figure. Now, what you discover, this is uh, not my own chidush, the chidush of a colleague of mine at Barilan University, Dr. Neria Klein. He said, Yehoshaphat is the fourth king of Yehuda following Shlomo. Look at the sizes of the armies in uh, uh, leading up to Shlomo. Rechavam, who was Shlomo's son, he had 180,000. Avia, who was his son, had 400,000. Asa, who is Avia's son, had the total of the two of them put together. These two figures, Rechavam and Avia, were not good kings. Asa was a good king. And so his armies figured or added up to the total of the previous two armies. And then you come and look at Yehoshaphat, who is Asa's son, and who was the best king of the four, and his army is twice that of his father Asa, and equal to the total of all previous three kings before them. They're only no! 160. You take yeah. Rechavim Asa at 1,160, Yehoshaphat is 1,160, both of them, both of them combined. This, yeah. is a liter this is a literary device, basically. Yes, and it's when you see this, you go, ah, truth has been told. But you just look at it, you say, that, that's it. And there's, no one, there's no other way to understand how these numbers just happen to be this way. And so what you discover is that what the Tanakh is trying to do in many places, especially with numbers, is not to tell you statistic quantitative things. Because really, who cares? Who cares how many soldiers these people right. have? Uh, once you realize, wait a minute, the numbers are themselves the bearers of meaning, then it's a way of telling you who is a good king and who is not a good king, who is an even better king. Um, now something makes yeah. sense. That it's actually, that actually reminds me of, you know, the whole idea of Paro, Hashem hardened Paro's heart. Because if you understand, if you look into Egyptian history, you know, the hardening or the heaviness of the heart of the Pharaoh was a way for the other, pre, for the new Pharaohs to show that the previous Pharaoh was evil. And the Torah is using that language because that was a language that people could understand at the time. It was it was relevant, like the same way I could say, I'm so hungry, I can eat a cow. You know, a thousand years from now, people might not, they'd be like, wow, people eat cows in one sitting, but yeah. 
this is why I believe that it is so important for at least some Jews uh, like myself to uh, try to understand and learn as much as we can about the ancient modes of writing and thinking, because this is how the Torah is written. Now, you know, we, we believe that the Torah has eternal lessons to teach us, but already the Rambam writes in many places in the Moran Nebuchim that uh, the Torah is written, or at least on one of its 70 levels, is written in a way that is more directly uh, uh, understandable to the generation that came out from Mitzrayim, from Egypt. And therefore he says, he did everything, he writes this in one of his, one of his he wrote one of his epistles. He says, I did everything that I could to get hold of every book ever written about the ancient world. Because the more that I know about the ancient world, the better I will understand the Torah. And we should continue this mission. We have more tools than he ever had. That's right. We are very blessed. We are very blessed. And it wasn't only the Rambam. It wasn't only the Rambam. The Raubag has a remarkable statement. We all know the famous question at the end of Sefer Shemot. When we read the Parshiot of the Mishkan, right? Those last, you know, 10, 12 chapters of Sefer Shemot. And it's so repetitive, all the things that Moshe was told about how to build the Mishkan and then and then and the big day kahuna, the priestly garments. And then and then it's all told over again when Bitsalo does all of it. And it seems quite repetitive. And the Rabag says in the very last few lines of his commentary to Sefer Shemot, he says, you know, this is a question that's bothered me. He says, it bothers me religiously. It's not just, a, it's not just oh, I have a kashi in the text and I don't know what to do. It bothers him religiously. Why? He says, you know, where I live in Provence, this is my words now, but he says, you know, for me, for the world that I live in, uh, the perfection of a, a written work is that there's nothing that's, that's superfluous. Everything must, must be, you know, written in the most economic way. To give, to give over one particular lesson. And he says here, you know, this is obviously not economic writing. This it's obviously could have been written much more briefly. And he says, and I've looked at all the, quest, all the answers that, that Gilei Yisrael have given, and I don't like any of them. And he says, so therefore I must conclude that back then, in the time of the Tanakh, uh, people wrote in this way, in a much more repetitive way. And it wasn't considered bad writing. And even in the time of Moshe Rabbeinu, the Navi will speak in the way that it was customary to, to write back then. What I love about this Rabag is two points. Number one, his intellectual modesty, that he says, I have a question and I don't have an answer for it. And maybe I don't have an answer for it because I don't know everything. Because maybe once upon a time, things were different. And I wish my colleagues in the academy were as modest as the Rabag. Right. So often, critics, they look at something, well, we have to have the answer. So we're going to give the best answer we can, and that will be the answer. Rarely will they say, no, there's something going on here, and we're probably out of touch with it because we didn't live back then. I don't hear that so much uh, from, from, uh, from, from my colleagues, certainly about things like contradictions in the Torah. And what's so remarkable is that the Rabag was absolutely right. When we now, he didn't have access to Mesopotamian and Egyptian writings like we do. Once we dug that stuff up, oh my gosh, we saw, you know, it'll, you'll have a typical text that will say, and the king said to his servant, go and do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And then it says, and the servant went and he did A, B, C, D, E, F, G. It's like what we have with the Mishkan. And the reason that it's like that is because these texts were being committed to memory. 
and it's as a, as a mnemonic device, it helps when you repeat things endlessly over and over. So the Rabbah got it just right, got it just right. And this is why it's a mitzvah. It's so important to understand ancient writing and ancient thinking. You can, you be a good Jew, you can be a good Jew without it, but if you want to get to Shutoshal Mikra, if you want to get this one of the 70, you know, Panim of the Torah, there's no other way. This is the way, this is the way. Yeah, so um, talking about the way um, ancient texts were transmitted, Judaism is unique because it was the first time, I, as far as I know, that this kind of information was uh, released to the populace. Can you explain the significance of that and how that compares to what the ancients were doing? Okay, all right, we are the people of the book, right? Right. It's kind of a phrase that's thrown out there, but let me give one, one, one uh, insight as to what that might mean, okay? Um, um, this is gonna be hard to believe, but we Jews did not invent writing. Writing came before there were Jews in this world. You know, Mesopotamian, you know, maybe you've seen, um, uh, uh, you know, you know, there's a cuneiform, you know, all these wedges and things. Certainly you've seen, you know, hieroglyphics, you know, this, this, you know, all sorts of things like that. Okay, these are very ancient systems of writing uh, and they're extremely difficult to learn. And very few people knew how to read and write. And anybody that knew how to read and write, it was because they were trained by the kings and by the priests in order to serve the kings and the priests. Nobody, but nobody else knew how to read and write. Okay? And then somewhere uh, around the time of Itziat Mitzrayim, uh, some scribes north of here discovered, hey, you know, we can take a phoneme, uh, like, like mm, and a grapheme, like that looks like an M, and connect the two. And now every time we see something that looks like an M, we'll go, hmm. And they figured out, you know, you can get away with as little as 22 or 24 of these. And now you can reproduce speech very simply and quickly with what we call the alphabet. And, you know, you can teach a five-year-old the alphabet in, in, you know, in five minutes. Basically about five minutes, most of the alphabet. And uh, so we discovered, so they discovered the alphabetic text. But now here's the big thing. Even though the alphabetic text made things much, much simpler, uh, it didn't necessarily mean that now everybody would know how to, how to read and write because the priests and kings wanted to hold this power close to, close to their chest because they understood if people know how to read and write, they can exchange ideas, they can you know, rebel, they can, they can amass ideas and people around them. And so uh, the alphabet was not widely taught and, no, and compositions written in other cultures were not disseminated to the masses. In order for a technology of communication to be widely used in the public, the public, there has to be a culture that is ready to empower the common individual. Let me give a modern, a more modern example of what I mean. The printing press, okay? The printing press invented in the middle of the 15th century. The printing press was known all over the world, the civilized world at that time, okay? It was known in Eastern Europe, it was known in Western Europe, and it was also happened, it was also known in, uh, in Muslim countries. In Western Europe, which was undergoing the Reformation at that time, the idea that everybody can be their own priest, everybody should have a connection with God, everybody should be able to study the Bible on their own. Wow, the printing press took off because the Reformation was all about empowering the common person. And in Eastern Europe, they were like, Teach the, teach the people how to read the Bible? What are they gonna understand? They're not gonna understand anything. They should just look up at their stained glass windows in the churches and they'll know what they need to do. But we can't give this power to the masses. And in the Muslim world, it was a sin. It was a sin to use the printing press. 
because they understood that this would take power away from the sheikhs and the imams. And so you can have a technology of communication, but unless there is a culture that is ready to say, yes, we want to teach the common person how to read and write, it won't work. And it was the same thing with the alphabet, way back when. Other cultures, Mesopotamia and Egypt and other cultures, Ugarit, other places that are smaller, that are nearby, knew the alphabetic text, but never used it to compose texts to disseminate to the masses and never taught literacy to anybody. The first culture in world history that creates written texts for the purpose of dissemination to the people is the Jewish people with the Torah. That's incredible. I think Rabbi Sachs actually um, tr uh, understands the term in this manner, that we're a nation of priests, meaning a nation that, that um, a nation that, that embraces learning instead of just the higher-ups. So I actually want to go into, like, there's specific places in the Torah where it seems to, you know, a person who's just looking at the text for, you know, what it says, like uh, in specifically Noah, it seems like there's an interweaving of potentially different texts, um, like the story of the raven and the dove, they're kind of like overlapping with each other. The problem, obviously, when, when people try to say, you know, there's multiple authors, if that was the case, if there were multiple authors, and the way they believe it is that like, literally every sentence might have four authors you know, putting in their different ideas, there's, it wouldn't be, I don't think it would be possible to, to be coherent. So how, how do you find, um, how do you deal with these kind of questions? Okay, let me just say a little bit more about that particular example of biblical criticism, the, uh, the, the, the flood story of Breshit, uh, uh, chapter six to nine. Um, that is considered the parade example of biblical criticism. You see, when you read the story of the Mabul, of the flood, okay, chapters six to nine, you immediately notice that there's many, many things that are repeated. Things happen twice and three and four. I mean, the number of times that Noah gets onto the Teva, it must be about four times, okay? And he gets off a couple times. And many things seem to happen many times. Um, even our Mepharshim in the Middle Ages understood you cannot read the story of the Mabul a to Z as one linear story that every pasuk chronologically is following the previous story, okay? And what critics tried to do was they said, well, you know, we can, what we can seem to be able to do here is to get rid of a lot of these redundancies by separating the story into two strands. And you can see that there's a whole story and another, most of a whole story, and within those two versions, everything seems to be consistent. And then apparently what happened was that there were two traditions about the Mabul. And later a redactor came along and melded them together. And that's how we come to our version, so goes the theory. This is how we come to our version of the Torah where uh, uh, we have a story that has many repetitions in it, and maybe perhaps even some things that are contradictory, okay? That's the claim, all right? Now, um, I think that there are about eight or nine methodological flaws with this, but let me, let me, let me just, uh, uh, I mean, depends how much time we have to, to discuss this, but um, um, this is a classic example of, of um, uh, needing to know 
how ancients wrote and how they thought. So let me just start off by saying there's no evidence anywhere in the ancient world of editors in any culture doing this sort of thing, of taking uh, coherent texts and molding them to, to create something that is incoherent, right? Um, and so it'd be kind of strange that this happens here. If you saw this happening in every single uh, story in the Torah consistently, and you were able to parcel out two full complete stories everywhere, well, maybe, but it, 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 it doesn't work that way. It's, you know, it's a story here, it's a story here, it's a story here. Um, uh, the, 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 and, and it, doesn't even, it doesn't even create two full stories. But the thing that I want to point out is how much is missed when we do that. Now, let's see, I have, let me, let me I, want, I want to bring up some things onto the screen that I hadn't been planning, okay, before, before our, our meeting, but I think it'll be, since you've asked, I want to show some things on the screen, okay? So what happens when we, when we splice uh, uh, the, the, the story of the flood, creating what the critics say are 14, we split, we, we split into 27 parts, 14 parts on this side, 13 parts on this side, and then we meld them together like my fingers here. Um, not only is that something which we have no evidence that was done in, uh, in the ancient Near East, um, but it, we, we, we miss out on other things that are happening in the text. Let me show what we have here. Um, are you able to see this image that I have here on the screen? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's just this. Okay, what we have here is what is called a, uh, a chiastic structure, mm -hmm. okay? What do I mean by that? Let, let me show what we have here, okay? What I've done is I have taken the whole of the uh, story of, of the flood, okay? And um, a chiastic structure is when we have a story and the first element matches the last element and the second element matches the second to last element. Within so a, like, so a pattern, me, right? Within just explain. So for example, in, uh, we're, we're just before, as we're recording this, we're just before Tisha B'Av in Megillat Echa. Um, uh, so Perak Aleph is built this way. You have a word in, in Pasuk Aleph that is matched by a word in Pasuk Chafbet. A word that you have in Pasuk Bet that is matched by a word in Pasuk Chafala. So for example, Pasuk Aleph speaks about uh, Rabati, Rabati, and Pasuk Chafbet has the word Ki Rabot Anchotai, and it goes on and on like that. Matched, you know, match, 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 okay? Now, the whole of the, of the, of the flood can be mapped out in this way. So we have the A element, okay? Elohim pledges to Noah to destroy all flesh, okay? That's chapter six, verse 13. And at the end of the story, Elohim pledges to Noah to preserve all flesh, okay? Um, uh, number two, there's a flood to destroy all flesh, using that word. And the B prime, the second to last, no flood will destroy all flesh. Moving closer in to the, to the center, okay? So for example, it says, um, um, uh, water, mount, mountain, okay, 150 days, the waters prevailed. And then 150 days, the waters abated, okay? Mountains covered, mountain tops visible. All these are words that we have in the story, okay? Now, what's so remarkable about this is that the story comes to its apex and turns on the hinge just where you would expect it which is Perichet Pasuk Aleph, 
when God remembers Noach. In other words, everything that happens until that point in Perichet Pasuk Aleph is a process of destruction. And everything that happens after that point is a process of rebirth. And so it's all laid out 17, 17 uh, 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 branches and 17 branches here with exactly in the middle, just what you would, just where you would think the middle is when God remembers Noah and everything begins to turn. Um, what's also remarkable is that there are, there are 77 psukim in this whole story. And this is the 39th pasuk. It's exactly the middle pasuk. Okay? Now, all of this, this is not a way in which a modern person thinks. Nobody in the modern time writes like this with chiastic structures. But chiastic structures are found all over the ancient Near East. And so maybe some things are repetitive in this story because the Torah is written in a way that was appealing. It was using the literary conventions of the time where uh, uh, chiastic structure is so significant. Okay, Let me just show something else that, that you can only have when you have the, uh, this is probably earlier. Um, Okay, yeah, right. Uh, this is another thing that shows that the, the story must be as it appears in Chumash. And that is that when we compare uh, the second half of the story, what I'm calling the recreation of the world, from the beginning of Perichet to, to, to Perichet, it turns out that it, met, it mirrors the seven days of creation one day at a time, exactly all the details. Okay? So for example, you have here, uh, the dove return, uh, let's see, the appearance of mountains near Ur Roshayamim, uh, the dove returns with the olive branch. That's a sign that there's now vegetation in the world. The dove returns at evening time, evening. That means there's sun and moon outside, okay? There's day and night. Um, uh, all these things follow exactly uh, according to the seven days of creation. But this only works if you have the story as it appears in Sefer Breshit. Because if you split it up the way the critics do, then, I don't know, three or four of these belong to what's called the priestly source, and another three or four of these belong to what's called the J source or the non-priestly source. Well, voila, it's just what a coincidence that it's only when they're in the order that they're in Chomish that it happens to mirror the seven days of creation. Right? So, so, you know, this is why I don't put a whole lot of stock in this whole way of thinking. And there's much, much more that can be said methodologically about what's wrong with this attempt to recreate the sources. That is to say, aha, we see that we can separate out the Mabul, as it were, into two stories. It's not, it's one story and then two thirds of another story. Um, um, but it, it just misses so much and it wasn't the way things were done back then. And there's many other problems with it as well. Amazing. And, uh, you know, that's just the intertextuality side of things, but I wanna actually compare the literature of you know, the ancient Near East that predates the Torah, like uh, the Atrahasis and uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, which the motifs are very, very similar. There's a lot of overlap with that and, and the Enuma Elish with the creation story of the Torah and the story of uh, Noah. So can you explain like why the Torah is not, you know, coming up with new stories, but kind of building off of these stories from the ancient world? And what exactly is the Torah doing to transform the message? And whether that affects the, 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 the 
the truth of the events, the veracity of the events. Yeah, yeah, okay. So you asked about the, uh, 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 the story of Atra Hasis, which is a Mesopotamian version of the flood story that is contained in the end of uh, uh, the Gilgamesh epic. And what some scholars have noticed is that remarkably, there are, you can point out, you can point to 17 uh, uh, elements in the story of the Mabul in this order. And the exact order in which they appear in Sefer Bereshit is exactly the same order in which they appear in the Mesopotamian version of the flood. Wow. So again, this is an external control that this order is correct, okay? There's no way that they could all line up exactly, all 17 in order, unless the, the Chumash is written this way, Lechatchila, originally, as here. But then it does raise the kind of vexing question, wait a minute, wait, wait, you're telling me that the Torah's account of the, of the flood is, you know, element by element the same as an older Mesopotamian heathen version. So wait a minute. So are we just like doing a knockoff of what's happening elsewhere? And did this stuff really happen? Hmm. Maybe we got rid of the problem of multiple sources, but now we've opened up all sorts of Pandora boxes, yeah. right? Okay. So I will say this. Um, um, uh, uh, I want to answer theologically and then historically. Okay. So theologically, um, what's fascinating about the Torah's version of the Mabul and how it stacks up to the Mesopotamian version of the flood is so much that's similar, as I just showed you in quick, you weren't, able to, you weren't able to see the little details, but it's it's in one of those books of mine that, the, that you mentioned there. Um, um, but there is a huge theological difference. You see, in the Mesopotamian version of the flood, the reason that the gods want to wipe out mankind is the following. Mankind were making too much noise, <laughs> disturbing the sleep of the gods. This is what it says, okay? And so they wanted to limit the number of people on the earth so they could take a nap, okay? And then at the end, they did such a good job of wiping out humanity that they go, oh no, now who's gonna bring us our carbonos? You know, who's gonna, how are we gonna have sacrifices? There aren't, there aren't gonna be enough people to work in the temples and to work the fields and to, to, bring, us, to bring us the grain and all that. So somehow we have to find a way to balance having people in the world who will serve us, but not too many people in the world that will still be able to take a nap. And the, the, end of the, the end of the Mesopotamian version of the flood story is, okay, they reintroduced people into the world, but they also created stillburns and they also created uh, infertility and they also created uh, um, uh, uh, temple priestesses who wouldn't get married and all those things together, that would kind of tamp down repro repro the man's reproductive uh, 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 numbers. Okay? That's what they do there. Along comes the Torah and says, Kodesh Baruch Hu destroyed the world. Not because his sleep was being disturbed, but because man is accountable for his actions. And when man sins, man gets punished. And what's so remarkable, right? I told you that at the end of the Mesopotamian version, there's all these attempts to limit reproductivity amongst man. <laughs> Noah, as he's stepping out of the Teva, Hashem says to him, a ringing endorsement of the value of human life. Fill it up, fill it up as much as you can. What could be greater difference? Wow. Yeah. Unbelievable. And what about from the historical aspect? Right. 
Right. This, right. this one, this one, like, I know that a lot of people have trouble because, you know, the, 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 the idea that these stories are being sure. Sure. Borrowed. Sure. borrowed or mimicked. Let me, let me, let me say this. Um, uh, there's several aspects of this, but let me just start by saying Rav David Svi Hoffman, okay, who was the greatest POSIC in Germany at the uh, turn of the 20th century, okay, um, who also knew a lot of biblical criticism. He, right, he has a perush on Breshit, and he says, so for me, it, I can't accept that the world was destroyed in total because, because science doesn't, doesn't, doesn't allow for that. I, the Torah seems to speak of a mabul. So he says, well, maybe there was a mabul in that region. This is what he says. Okay, even the Torah, even though the Torah speaks in, you know, literally global terms. Okay. So it didn't bother him to say that the Torah doesn't speak about every fact in a factual way. Okay. Which then opens up, wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Aren't we supposed to believe that everything in the Torah is exactly the way it's written? That it's true, right? Isn't the Torah true? True means it's true, right? And so Rabbi Svi Hoffman, it's very nice that now he's got his science, you know, balancing out with the Torah. But now he's saying, it would seem to us that he's saying the Torah isn't true. And he's a rabbi. But what do we do? Okay, so this is what's so important for us to understand that in just the same way as earlier in our discussion, I showed how numbers, okay, in the Torah are often the bearers of meaning and don't have the same quantitative statistical implications that they have for us. And really, it's only us moderns that look at numbers that way. We wouldn't know that we're the only ones to look at it that way because everyone that we know, i.e. everyone who's alive today, looks at numbers in these ways. They didn't look at numbers in these ways in the previous times. And so it's true with a lot of things. There are a lot of things where the Torah uses embellishment, not just the Torah. All, all pre-modern writing does this. This thing that we have today that things in order to have value must be factual. This is a very modern way of thinking. Right? Now, this is a very challenging idea because for some, this can be a slippery slope. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If there wasn't the mabul exactly the way it said, was there Yitzhak Mitzrayim the way that it said? Was there Yitzhak Mitzrayim at all? Was there a Matan Torah? Was there a Moshe Rabbeinu? Slippery slope, it's very challenging. Okay, so what I, what I will tell you is that in the ancient world, uh, they, they took events that they had heard about to be true, but always when people talked about events, they always embellished them. Rav Cook writes about this. Rav Cook says that, uh, how are we supposed to know whether something happened exactly the way in the Torah as it happened or not? He says, he says, you know, the purpose of the writing of every story in the Torah is to uh, instill a lesson in the hearts of those that read it and hear it. And he says, when the Torah believes that, that uh, uh, just presenting the facts of the story will create that deep impression on the soul that is necessary to learn the lessons, then the Torah will, 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 will give just the facts. And when the Torah believes that sometimes not just the facts or the facts alone will be kind of dry, then the Torah will have no qualms about instilling and using a levush, an embellishment on the story so that it reaches the, the hearts and the, and, and the souls, and the minds of the people uh, reading and listening. Okay? We have today a crisis of authority and therefore we, 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 we insist that whenever we read a history book, 
whenever we read a, a newspaper, just give me the facts and I will determine based on giving you the credit, whether it's the New York Times or Fox News or whatever it is, that you are giving me the facts, then I will determine what the message is. And in ancient times, it didn't work that way at all, anywhere. Uh, there's no word, get this, think about this. This is, this is a mind-blowing thing. In biblical Hebrew and in rabbinic Hebrew, there is no word for fact. There's no word for fiction. There's no word for history. All of these terms are modern constructs. And we have to understand that people back then didn't, didn't, didn't think of these things in these ways. Now, this doesn't mean that everything is a myth. There's ways to know whether something is a myth. The things that are myths, you know, like Greek myths, tend to have the following characteristics. They are things that happen in, you know, primordial times, you know, way, way back when, when nobody knows exactly when it was in a place that nobody knows where it is today. Okay, that's one typical, uh, typical thing of a myth. Uh, the myths usually are one frame in time, not an ongoing story. Okay? They usually have like one basic theme. They have characters that don't change over time. So the things that look like myths tend to be the things at the very beginning of Sefer Bereshit. Exactly. The story of the Mabul, the flood. Adam and Eve, right? Yeah, well, okay, yeah, yeah, Ghanadin, right, exactly, exactly, exactly. Um, uh, and you can, and what's remarkable is that uh, as famous as those stories are, just think of how little the rest of Tanakh refers back to those stories. You know, you this general idea of Masibrish, Shabbat, you know, but, but um, you know, the Mabul barely mentioned the rest of Tanakh, Gan Eden is mentioned barely in the rest of Tanakh, Midal Bavel, barely. Okay. The ages of men also change significantly. After. Yes, and all those numbers, they're all symbolic. Yeah. They're all symbolic. Okay. And I say that, I say that not just as a, as a scholar, okay? Yeah. I'm saying that as a rabbi. Look, I mean, uh, I have in that PowerPoint presentation, just to show you another instance where the numbers seem so clear, and it seems that the Torah is telling us absolute fact, and it's so clear that that's not what's going on. And it's not just Berman that's saying it, it's the Nitzib that's saying it. Let me, let me show you something else, okay? How many, how many descendants of Yaakov Avinu went down to Mitzrayim? 70. Well, it says here, 70. We all know that, right? We know that from Lela Seder, you know, we sit there at the Seder table, Shivin Nefesh, right? You do a Botin on Mitzrayim, 70. How do we know it says 70? Because it says it's 70. And not only does the Torah say that it's 70, but it gives us the roll call. It lists, it lists the 70 names. So it's clear that that must be what the Torah is saying, except that already the Nitziv said it's not 70. It can't be 70 because the Torah says before that that this includes all of Yaakov Avinu's daughters and granddaughters and daughters-in-law. And when you look at the list, what you see is that there are only two women. And so it, it can't be. It's a contradiction within itself. Exactly. So, so the Nitziv says also it must be that it's symbolic. Okay. But what I want to show you, he gives his symbolisms, but I want to show you what, what I think is really going on. What you have there in the 70 to 7 descendants is this. You have the numbers that are given, you know, that, that Rachel had 14 descendants. Bilha had seven. Okay? You have the numbers. Okay. But then you also have the names themselves. And when you add them up, and this already Chazal were aware of, you don't get 70, you get 69. Okay? It gives 14 names for Rachel, seven names for Bilhah, 32 for, for Leah, and 16 for Zilpah. 
Now, this that's already a steerer within itself. Is it 69 or is it 70? Watch, watch what's happening. These numbers are not there to tell you a census, okay? They're there to convey meaning and message. What is the meaning and message of all these numbers? It's like this. When you look at the tally totals there, so Bilha had seven. Rachel, right, the, her primary mother has twi twice the nouns, okay? Uh, no, sorry, seven. Rachel has 14. Leah and Zilpah together have 49, and that'll, that'll all equal 70. In other words, all of the numbers are all multiples of seven. That is to say, B'nai Yisrael reflect the, the midah of shlemus, of, 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 of perfection, in total, and, excuse me, and, and also in their parts, okay? So that all the parts also add up to 70. When you look at just the, the, the number of names, which add up to 69, then you see something else. What you see is that the, the, the imahot, Rachel and Leah, each have twice the number of their shvachot. And this teaches you there is a hierarchy within the imahot. There are the primary imahot, and there are the, the, the secondary imahot. Okay? So what I've managed to do is to take a whole can of worms, 70 that isn't 70, two women that can't be, can't be that they're just two women, and I've managed to find significance in the numbers. So what's happening here is that we have to learn to read the Torah in its ancient context. And when we don't, then we begin to ask all sorts of questions that no one ever asked before, because we are living much later than the time of the Torah, because we have anachronistic ways of thinking and writing, and we're not even aware of it. That's the problem. I, I have a question. Um, I think that some people, the problem that they have regarding looking at uh, looking at the ancient context in order to glean more understanding out of the Torah is that the way Misora is presented today, people have this notion that's kind of been kind of instilled in them that the Misora is the totality of everything we are to understand of the Torah, and that everything that you that can or should ever be understood from the Torah is contained within that Misora. And therefore, to tell somebody, you know, you need to start looking at ancient context in order to better understand certain things, they are going to feel like, like there's like a, almost a, a, an infidelity with that, with that Misora. Sure, I hear that. Look, look. Um, um... Judaism is for all of the Jewish people. And the Jewish people, all of them, are strung out in terms of their abilities, intellectually, uh, theologically. And therefore, there are a lot of things that, 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 that uh, are part of our, our educational system, which work for a lot of people and are very important to teach, okay? When we, tell, when we instruct and we tell our youngsters, and we tell ourselves, that our, our, our Misora is pristine, it is as perfect, it is as, as it was given to Moshe Rabbeinu, and it is total. We have all of the body of wisdom given to us by our teachers, and therefore our teachers have all the answers. Um, there's something that's very warm and fuzzy about that, and it works for a lot of people. Um, throughout the tradition, there's always been a much wider tent about that. Uh, the whole idea of chidush, goes against that. You know, this, I think, the, the, the type of, of approach to the Misorah, uh, Ben, that you were, that you were, the Ben Siam that you were saying, 
um, tends to work for the less educated masses and is given to the less educated masses. And maybe it's a good thing because it works. Needed for for that context. Yes, yes, yes. But it's clear that, you know, the whole notion of chidush goes against that. The whole notion of chidush is that there are, there are going to always be new insights uh, and that's, that's, uh, that's, that's, that's something to be celebrated. And it's our avodah. This is the way in which we serve a Kaddish Baruch by coming up with new insights. This isn't Berman saying this. This is the Rambam. This is the Nitziv. This is uh, Rechaim Yivalajan. This is everybody. This is Rechaim Yibris. This is, you know, many, 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 many. Obviously, there's a limit to the, to the things that we're allowed to say. There's a limit to, you know, everything has to be in, you know, in, 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 great, in great reverence for the things that were said before. Uh, but, but that said, you know, within, within the frameworks, there's tremendous, not only room for chidush, this is a religious imperative. That is what I would say. Now, again, this is not something that's, that, that works for everybody. And it's important that, you know, for a, lot, for a lot of the masses out there, that a very simple message is given. Nothing's been lost. Everything's exactly the way Moshe Rabbeinu got it. It works. So there's a fine line between someone who might need to hear uh, a certain version of how things are presented, not to necessarily try to attempt to like, let's say burst that bubble because certain people might need to hear it that way. And we need to kind of protect that also. But for those that are naturally more inclined towards, you know, further, further thought about these things, then yeah, that, that becomes, it becomes our imperative to be able to provide ample and intellectually honest answers about these things. Yes, absolutely. Regarding uh, Yitzhak Mitzrayim, what extra biblical evidence exists to support the Torah's claim? Why? And we also want to understand why this matters since the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. So uh, what, is, what is the gain from trying to, to glean over these extra biblical sources? And in your book, Animamin, uh, you make a fascinating observation observation regarding the usage of the term yad chazaka um and can you expand on that idea i think the viewers would really enjoy that if if there's one thing that many people know from what this whole area called biblical criticism it's the claim that there was no exodus and the claim is not so far-fetched because there it doesn't seem to be any evidence for the exodus there are there are there is no mention of Hebrews in any Egyptian text. No mention of Israelites. No mention of Moshe. No mention of slaves getting up and leaving. Obviously, there's no mention of plagues. Um, it is impossible that there were two or three million people who got up and left because there's no the 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 the, the, the countries at the time were not big enough. Uh, and so the whole thing is, is you know it's one thing to say you know, you can't prove to me that Avram Avinu never existed. That's right, that's right. And there you can say, you know, the, ab- the absence of, e- of evidence is an evidence of absence. But when you have so many things and there's no, no mention of it, it seems kind of damning, okay? Uh, and my there's claim- response. You can't just leave it like that because, because people would say that since there's no, nothing really going, yeah. What I'm saying is that the question is not a ridiculous question, okay? And my claim, my claim is that uh, 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 we've all been looking in the wrong place. What we've tried to do is to say, hmm, well, the Torah says all these things. Now let's go to our, what we know about Egypt and our Egyptian texts and look for the Torah in these Egyptian texts. And I say, as they say in Yiddish, kaker. 
You have to turn it around. To see proof of the Exodus, you have to take what you know or you know about Egypt and see how much the Torah seems to know about very specific texts and very specific individuals. Okay. Uh, in broad, in broad uh, fashion, the Torah engages in what is called cultural appropriation. That is where an oppressed people takes the propaganda of their oppressors and uses it for themselves. We see this in the phrase, Yad Chazaka Bizroa a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Uh, we might think of that, yeah, it's just the Torah is just using hyperbole to describe a Kaddish Baruch Hu's strength. But what's really interesting is that within the Torah itself, within the Tanakh itself, this phrase, Yad Chazaka, the Zerua is used exclusively with regard to Yitziat Mitzrayim. We never see another miracle outside of the, the, the description of the Exodus where the Torah says, oh, and what Hashem did here, hmm, that's his Yad Chazaka, the Zerua What's fascinating is that when you look in the inscriptions of ancient Egypt in the period called the New Kingdom, 1500, 1200 BCE, which is roughly the period that tradition would say is the period of the enslavement. Then what you see is that the, the pharaohs are routinely lauded in these inscriptions for having performed all of their escapades with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Whether it's defeating the Libyans, whether it's going on a hunting trip and bagging 120 elephants, whether it's finding a diamond the size of a, the size, the size, the size of, a, of a football. And all these things, all these inscriptions say, oh, the Pharaoh, what a mighty hand and outstretched arm he had. Along comes the Torah and says, we're going to out-pharaoh the Pharaoh. We're going to steal your thunder. And we are going to say that a Kaddish Baruch Hu defeating the Pharaoh is he is using the mighty hand and the outstretched arm. Okay? There's a whole bunch of phrases in the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim that do that. That by itself is really cool. That itself does not prove that there was Yitzhak Mitzrayim. Okay? But I want to show you something that I think uh, 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 begins to do that. Let's see if I can bring back this uh, PowerPoint. Uh, okay, let's, uh, let's go to the beginning. We were here. All right, we're gonna move on. Okay, all right. All right, I wanna tell you about one particular king. Ramses II, okay? Ramses II is also called Ramses the Great. In fact, if, if, if I mentioned before this period called the, the Egyptian New Kingdom, 1500 to 1200 BCE, that is the zenith of Egypt, Egyptian history. And the greatest king of this period is Ramses II. And his greatest, Achievement was a battle that he had against the Hittite Empire over here, and it was at a place called uh, Kadesh, right on the on the border between Lebanon and Syria. And what, when he comes back to um, to Egypt, he plasters the place with inscriptions about this event. In fact, there's no event in all of ancient history, Greece and Rome included, that is so widely publicized as the Battle of Kadesh. He has written inscriptions, accounts, and also these reliefs. You know, what you're looking at here, pictures. Now, some of these pictures are really, really interesting in terms of the Torah. We'll see what we have here. They're very confusing. They look like, ah, there's so much going on here. This is at the Battle of Kadesh. This is Ramses' throne, throne uh, it's his camp, his military encampment. You can see it's got a wall around it, okay? And in the middle, his throne tent. Can you see with my cursor what I'm doing? I'm pointing to the throne tent, okay? Now his throne tent, trust me, when you look at, when you measure it, then you discover, well, you see there's two chambers, okay? One of the chambers is two by one. 
And the other chamber is one by one. You see this elsewhere too, in another place. Again, here's the wall around the encampment. Here's the throne tent, two chambers. One of them is two by one. One of them is one by one, okay? And here's a third one in a different place. Here's the wall around the machane. Here's his armies all around. And in the middle, you have, uh, uh, you have uh, two by one and one by one, okay? Now, why do I mention all this? Well, because having an encampment, a military encampment, with a fence around it, with a kind of tent in the middle that has two chambers, one of them two by one, and one of them one by one, well, that's the Mishkan, okay? Wow. In other words, what we see here is that the basic design of the throne camp, of the, 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 the military camp of Ramses II, with his throne tent in the middle, having two chambers, one of them two by one in proportion, one of them one by one in proportion, with the entrance from the east, in Egyptian maps, the east is on the left, wrap your head around that one, but it's just true, okay? And we have exactly the same thing with the Mishkan. Am Yisrael, as a military camp, say for Bamidbar, surrounds the Mishkan, entrance on the east, a tent in the middle, the king's tent, as it were, two chambers, one of them is one by one, one of them one by one, one of them is two by one, okay? Exactly the same. In fact, in fact, if you look here at this particular representation of it, can you see what's going on here? These are falcons with their wings spread, okay? In Egyptian mythology, that's Horus, okay? The god Horus. And in the middle is, this is uh, the name Ramses II. They are hovering over him. Right? Just like we have in the Mishkan, you have Kruvim hovering over the Aron Habrit. Now, what is going on here? Why is there this similarity? And I will tell you that this similarity is highly distinct. That is, there are no other temples that we know of in the ancient Near East that are a tent with two by one and one by one with a wall around it. And there are no other throne, there are no other military camps that have a throne tent in the middle like this, two by one, one by one, okay? And the claim is, this, this already scholars discovered in the 1930s, the thought was, ah, this is a further extension of that idea that I mentioned before of cultural appropriation. That is, this would suggest that Israelites were actually present in Egypt, something happened to them, and they felt that the way in which they were going to celebrate God was by, by the, what, the, what the Torah is essentially saying is that you all saw these pictures all over Egypt, right? That we saw here and here and here and here and here. Whoops, sorry, here. Uh, these were so famous, these images that the Torah says here to help you understand this very abstract concept of God, we're going to now defeat Ramses II at his own game and have an exodus and Hashem's tent will be like, like the greatest king of the greatest period of Egyptian history, celebrating his greatest event, the, the battle of, 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 of Kadesh. So this is cultural appropriation. This is taking the propaganda of the pharaohs and using it against them. Okay? And what I have done further from what these scholars uh, have pointed out about these images of the throne camp, of uh, 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 the, 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 the military camp, of Ramses II and the throne tent in the middle, 
I went a step further and said, well, I want to read the stories of what he says happened at the Battle of Kadesh. And what I was able to show is that the story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, especially Perak Yudalad and Tedvav, Kriyat Yamsuf, and, uh, 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 and Shirat Hayam, it all follows almost line by line in many, many places. And a lot of the imagery is the same. You know, uh, here, I'll just show you one, one more thing that's like really pretty cool about this. Where were we? We were here. So for example, um, uh, let's just see. Yeah, it says that they, they, they drowned just like we have in the water here. Okay, uh, one more image. Okay, here, here, all right. Um, this is almost any Pharaoh. This is the iconic image of Pharaohs all over Egypt. What is the Pharaoh doing here? In his left hand, that's this, he is holding the hair of POWs, okay? And in his right hand, he has a mace and he is about to shatter their heads. Every Pharaoh posed for a picture like this. You see this all over Egypt, okay? Now, this is what the Torah means when it says, Yemincha Hashem tiratz oyev, your right hand shatters the enemy, okay? It's taking from the Egyptian propaganda and using it against the Egyptians in celebration of a Kaddish Baruch Let me just conclude this, friend, by saying, if you want to see all this stuff, you know, all of the, uh, the pictures that we have here, uh, uh, that we had of the, of the Mishkan and all these things, you can actually go and visit these because next January, I am leading a trip, a tour to Egypt. And you can actually touch mud bricks with straw and you can read the name Miriam and hieroglyphics. I am leading a tour with uh, Kesher Tours, Kesher with a K, Kesher Tours. Next January, it's called In the Footsteps of the Exodus. It will be the first ever kosher tour to Egypt with a Tanakh in hand to show us all these amazing things that we can learn about our Masora from visiting Egypt. Wow, you're really doing That's unbelievable. Out of curiosity, are you working on any future books? Yeah, Emir Tashem, I'm finishing just now uh, a, a book on Eicha. Really? Won't be ready in time for next week, but uh, yeah, Eicha is an amazing, amazing safer, amazing safer. It's an amazing safer. Uh, yeah, but that's for a different discussion. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. This was amazing. Great stuff. That little, I think that little section that we just did on the Mishkan, you know, and, and those uh, those reliefs is, you know, visually very cool, you know. Yeah.